what I've passed out to you is sort of a basic roadmap of everything that I did, and we'll leave with Gil. We won't cover all of it here, but it's uh, <clears throat> sort of this is the content. If you go to Gil or it's put on the website, the detail work that I won't be doing, there just isn't time, but if you uh, would like to pursue it in some degree of detail, uh, that's sort of a roadmap. I'd like to, this morning, start with <clears throat> the section on reconciliation, and we'll leave the tough nut to uh, the later one. Propitiation is the detailed one. Uh, very important, but let's leave that uh, for now. Let's look at um, what the New Testament has to say about reconciliation. Classic Sadie's Doctrinae is 2 Corinthians 5. Give me just a second here. I've got one of these tiny ESVs. I, at 66, I should not have a New Testament like this. Goodness gracious. Two Corinthians five, eighteen through twenty. Uh, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay? Now the emphasis is going to be on a particular syllable here, the earlier part of that verse, and I'll add something about the latter part at the end. Because this, the, the most important thing here is that God was in Christ reconciling us to Himself. Some have said that the concept of reconciliation is, is the best way to understand the atonement. But there's a downside to that. If this line is taken, it must be because reconciliation is seen as the thrust of many New Testament passages. But, as a matter of fact, the term is found in no more, no more than a handful of passages, all of them in St. Paul. But it's implied in places where it's not exactly mentioned in set terms. The term we use commonly, and in much the same way as the people use it in Bible days, it means to restore to friendship, or to make up after a quarrel. It means bringing people into a state of friendship after they've been at loggerheads with each other. Uh, labor relations, marriage counseling, um, turning people from being enemies back into being friends, replacing enmity with friendship, ending a quarrel. Now, it is not a, a term to describe good relations in general. It usually implies three states. First, friendship. Then a quarrel then friendship again. Back in Genesis, we begin, God created our first parents to be in fellowship with Himself, put them in the garden. It was a picture of bliss, how things ought to be. God and man in complete harmony. Don't you love that verse? And God and Adam walked together in the cool of the day. Yo. Nothing to spoil the picture until sin came. Fellowship is a wonderful thing, one of the most enriching experiences of life, but it's fragile. And it's got to be looked after carefully or we lose it. Uh, he gives some examples you'll see in the text if you read it. And for fellowship to exist, there's got to be more than a kind of armed truce, a, re a refraining from open conflict. Fellowship is more than that. It means warmth and goodwill on both sides. Uh, a one-sided kindliness is not fellowship. And when fellowship exists, it can be ended. And there's no surer way to end it than by one person thwarting the purposes of the other. Uh, he gives the example of a young son who wants something and his father denies it. And the son pitches a holy fit over being denied. 
and a decided coolness develops between father and son. Now granted, the son's desire might not have been a good one, but the fellowship and the development of anger uh, is that thwarting of a desire. Or he gives an example of a social reformer who sees great injustice, a rich landlord making money out of other people's misery. He sets about to change this state of affairs, and immediately he meets strong opposition. He gets angry. We would think, we're not, uh, we would think less of him if he didn't get angry in this. We don't call his emotion anger. We call it righteous indignation. Um, there can be a strong and praiseworthy opposition to evil. Obstructing God's purposes. God's purposes are righteous. His purpose is, first of all, that we are saved and that we have a rich and full life. And we set ourselves, every one of us, against God's purposes in one way or another. And sin obstructs those purposes and the dreadful result is the wrath of God. First, it obstructs God's purposes in the sinner, and we become less than real human beings. I lie, and I don't notice when it happens that I become a liar, but I do. I steal, I don't know when exactly it happens, but I become a thief. It's true of the great sins, as well as the ones we see as smaller sins. And pride and self-centeredness start to take center stage, and says Morris, we must not think that God does not mind this. He does. When we make ourselves into lesser people, obstruct his purposes and arouse his wrath and destroy a hope of fellowship with him. And the same consequences occur when we sit against others. He describes a lazy man that he once knew. Uh, and this is in, uh, where was he? New Zealand? No, Australia. And he knew a guy who had perfectly worked the social welfare system. And he said, that's bad enough, but the boys grew up thinking that what it was to be a man and a father was to work the system. And he talks about the ramifications of that. John Dunn's line, no man is an island. Uh, we make ourselves into God's en uh, enemies. In James 4, the author talks about enmity or hostility between us and God. Self-caused. We have made him our enemy. In Romans 5, we were God's enemies. In Colossians 1, once you, Gentiles, were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So the New Testament speaks of God and sinners as enemies. Now many people, if you preach that, will think that you're doing hyperbole. It's actually biblical words. Uh, they'll say, surely this guy's over the top. Uh, and they don't know their New Testament. Uh, the language is in there. Notes Boris. An enemy is not someone simply who falls a little short of being a good, faithful friend. No, he belongs in the opposite camp. The sin we do inevitably arouses the hostility of God. When the language of reconciliation is used, the New Testament writers always speak of man has been reconciled, never God. And the liberals use that like crazy. Huh? I'll say a little bit about that later on. And many will argue that we should not think of an attitude in God as needing to be modified. He's just love. He's always ready for men to return to it. The hostility arises in our minds, and the moment we get rid of it, all is well. Now, there's some truth to this. God is love, and he is always ready to receive repentant sinners, but there's error, too. It's the demand of God that causes the hostility. Men might have no conscious hostility to God, not conscious. Uh, we in our lives are sometimes ready to let bygones be bygones, let the past be the past, simply be friends, um, not be very much concerned about small sins and can't imagine why God would be. That's uh, You are familiar with this as Anglicans, as Episcopalians. You know, God is a gentleman and I'm sure he'll you know, grade on the curve and so forth. It's false, gentlemen. It's false. Example. Jones says, Smith is my enemy. Smith says, no, no, no. 
I'm not hostile. I'm quite ready to let the past rest so that we can be friends. Now, it's not easy to see how all the hostility comes from Smith here. It's Jones, not Smith, who speaks of enmity. It's Jones who sees an obstacle to friendly relations. It's the attitude of Jones, not Smith, that must be dealt with if there's to be reconciliation. Think of David, David and his claim to hostility to Saul in 1 Samuel. Um, and it's something like this with God and man. If man is not greatly concerned about the problem, we cannot say all the hostility is on the manward side. All that needs to be done is for man to quit or change. It's God's demand that we live holy lives, and that's the root cause of the problem. As long as he's angry with our sin, the attitude of God is going to be an important factor, indeed the important factor. And two, we cannot understand Christ's atoning work unless we see that God is hostile to every evil thing and every evil person. 2 Corinthians 5.14 One died for all, and therefore all died. But why should all die? It's an incidental reference to death of sinners. It shows us something about God's hostility to evil, as well as how he procured forgiveness. Morris, quote, If men are to be forgiven, something must be done about this hostility on God's side. There can be no fellowship between God and man as long as God is persisting in a demand to which men are indifferent. That is simply to perpetuate the enmity. Reconciliation takes note of the realities of the situation brought about by sin. In your 39 articles, quote, Christ truly suffered, was crucified, dead and buried to reconcile the Father to us. 39 articles. And it's the language of the New Testament. It's not giving expression to teaching that's foreign to that of the New Testament. It's taking seriously what the New Testament writers tell us about the hostility of God to all that is evil. Next, how does reconciliation take place? We all know that quarrels and enmities are part and parcel of life. We're quite familiar with them. It's also part and parcel of life that such quarrels are not necessarily permanent. It's possible to become friends again after there's been a quarrel. It's worth looking into the process of this. For example, you have a quarrel with a friend. You used really strong words in the heat of the moment. Later, you cool down. You say to yourself, I was a fool to quarrel with him. He's a valued friend. You think, I'd like to be friends again. So you decide you'll try to repair the damage. Take the initiative uh, to deal with the root cause. You apologize to him. Sincerely withdraw your words. As far as you can, you remove the cause of the enmity. You take it out of the way. Any action required by you, uh, you do. If there's a letter to be written, you write it. If there's a document to be signed, you sign it. If there's money owed, you pay it. It's only when the root cause is identified and dealt with that there can be genuine reconciliation. Without that, it's possible to have no more than an uneasy, patched-up truce. But not uh, the peace is not reconciliation. In our modern world, this seems to be overlooked. People concentrate on symptoms, don't get to grips with the deep-seated causes of the trouble, and the result is we never have real long-lasting peace. The removal of sin. <clears throat> We've seen that the root cause of the enmity between God and man was the sin of man. Sin always arouses the wrath of God. It's the barrier to good relations between God and man. If there's to be a reconciliation, that barrier must be done away. God did not adopt half measures in dealing with the problem. He sent his son to live here among men, die on the cross, and so put away our sin. Why his death should take away sin in this way of looking at the cross, the New Testament doesn't tell us, but it tells us that. Each of the great picture words about the atonement makes a contribution to the whole story, but none, no one is the whole story. Uh, reconciliation says God has taken away the root cause <clears throat> that has caused the breakdown. 
the Greek term reconciliation uh, can be used in a way slightly different from our English use. Uh, the English, we need the quarrel is over, full harmonious relations have been established. But Paul writes in Romans 5.11, can somebody read that for me? I, this is so small a print. Can somebody find Romans 5.11 and read it for us? By whom we have now received the atonement. Okay. Uh, this implies that reconciliation had, in some sense, been accomplished by what Christ did on the cross. Only then was it offered to those who receive it. <clears throat> reconciliation was worked or wrought on the cross before there was anything but evil in the hearts of us sinners. The basis of Paul's appeal, be reconciled to God, is that the reconciliation has already been accomplished on the cross. It certainly means there's more to this than man's response. As something we have received, Paul it refers to more than man's change of heart. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Romans 5.8 In Christ, God has reconciled us regardless of our response. We're to the objective again. Not the subjective. And if the subjective comes in here, it ruins everything. Not yet. So this is a statement about what God in Christ has done for the salvation of us all, not about our response. Some scholars overlook this and say that God is love, nothing is required for our salvation other than that we turn from our sin. Right. And that nothing is needed from God's side. He's there, simply waiting for us to come to Him. Uh, you might put a note in the margin, Abelard, his view of the atonement. These guys speak as if reconciliation is a term that refers to nothing more than a change of attitude on the part of sinful man. Uh, some examples of this blather, he, he lists them, you can read about your own, but it is blather. Uh, and what you end up doing is having this hortatory religion that has you trying to change your heart from within and to reconcile yourself to God, and, there's, and Christ is lost in it. It becomes a psychological activity on our part. Uh, you might have tried this, and it's absolutely hopeless. Sometimes it's progress to try to do something like this in response to what some preacher says and have it just end up in powder on the floor. It doesn't look like progress, but it is. It's a, it's a message again of our impotence. What we bring to the table is not our zeal. What we bring to the table is our hatred of God. What we bring to the table is our sin. We have callers to the white hairs, you know, say, well, don't you think I contributed anything to my conversion? You say, yeah, sin, hatred of God, darkness of mind. <laughs> and that's not the answer that brother's looking for. Uh, but I'm closer to the New Testament where we are than he is. To leave Christ out of this is to leave Christ out of Christianity and to start some new religion, says Morris. Quote, It's what Christ has done, not what man does in changing his attitude, that brings about reconciliation. On the view of the scholars who just noticed, reconciliation is little more than the clearing up of a misunderstanding. Christ has a greater part in the Christian way than merely to point out to men that they have some wrong ideas about God. He is the very center of Christianity, and his death on the cross is the heart of that. As Paul put it, we preach Christ crucified. The habitual message of Christian preachers, the essence of the gospel, is Christ's death on the cross. Making peace. Sometimes this is put in terms of making peace. In Ephesians 2, 
The writer is concerned with two divisions, deep ones, between God and men, and between Jew and Gentile. And of the Gentiles, he says in Ephesians 2, verse 12, you are separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God, and then because of what Christ has done, specifically his death, all this is now changed. You who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 13. Verse 14. For he, Jesus, for he himself is our peace. Christ can even be identified. He is our peace. Now, realize here, when the New Testament is talking about peace, it does not mean the eagles, that peaceful, easy feeling. He's talking about an objective situation, not a subjective one. Or I'll tell my parishioners, I can tell you there's peace between you and God because of Christ's blood and cross, and you feel terrible inside. There still is peace between you and God. And that's objectively true, because the New Testament says it's true. That's hard for Americans. Huh? There isn't peace till you have that peaceful, easy feeling. False. False. That is really a good thing, but I'll drop it at that. Okay. Uh, the importance of peace in the Bible. It isn't exactly the content we give it in our contemporary use. We have a kind of a Greek idea of peace found in the ancients. And to them and to us, basically, it's a negative term. It means the absence of war or strife or turmoil. If we don't have a conflict on our hands, we're at peace. And the Bible understanding of peace is much fuller than that. The New Testament writers took their idea of peace from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and there they picked up the meaning of the Hebrew term shalom, which has a positive meaning, not a negative term at all, not just the absence of war or strife, though that's one little piece. Rather, it's the presence of God's rich and full blessing, the normal greeting, peace to you, not, I hope you don't get into a fight, but rather, I trust that God's rich blessings will rest on you in all its fullness. Or, I wish you prosperity in the fullest sense of that word. Most agree that the basic idea in shalom is completeness, wholeness, soundness, well-being, a life that doesn't lack anything good. And now and then, the Old Testament uses shalom the way we use the English word peace. That is, that there isn't war. But it's the exception. That was one ingredient in peace. But so were material prosperity, spiritual prosperity. Christ is our peace. Completeness, wholeness, soundness in our lives depends on Him. What He has already done provides for our deep needs. We were alienated from God Christ brought us near. He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians 2.14. Scholars argue about this barrier or wall. Deep bitterness between Jew and Gentile, and sometimes that was symbolized in the wall in Jerusalem, temple. The passage has two divisions, between Jews and Gentiles and between God and man. Both are done away with in Christ. His death meant preaching peace to you who are far away, and peace to you who are near, too. Morris, Christ's death enabled both Jews and Gentiles to draw near to God, and as they did, they drew near to each other. Reconciliation with God means also reconciliation with man. They're connected. So peace has a very different content in the Bible than we sometimes give it in English, the English term. Uh, and finally, Paul's words at the end of Romans. The God of peace, Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is characterized as the God of peace by the fact that he is going to perform warlike actions. It's a strange uh, language to us. The overthrow of Satan was a necessary ingredient in peace the defeat of evil, the breaking down the barrier between God and man and God, the presence of God's rich and abundant blessing, 
positiveness, about the absence of anything, the barrier that separated us from God or anything else, it's the presence of God who is at peace with us and gives us peace with Him. Christ is our peace. All right. Now we say, but there was that last part of that verse. We beseech you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Right? Uh, Calvinists. Oh, by the way, somebody said, tell, tell us what you mean by reformed. I mean 16th century single malt Calvinism. Huh? <laughs> huh? Single malt. Yeah. They don't drink, they don't drink blends. I would have Mike in my house and I would bring out Chevis Regal and he'd say, do you have any beer? Why? Because it was a blend. It wasn't single malt. If that's strange talk, don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so when I say reformed, I mean that. I mean real Calvinism. No. There I'll say reformation to include us both. But we are not the same. Some of you I've said off to the side here. I've said to Mike before, I'm a one and a half point Calvinist. And Mike says, please don't say that on the radio. <laughs> the trouble that would cause in my reformed circles has no end. Because it's such a tight logical system. If you buy one, you buy five. Uh, we can talk about that privately. But if somebody said, uh, please tell us how you're using the word reformed. The real thing. Uh, 16th century single malt Scotch Calvinism. Can you give a Well, let me use TULIP then. Okay, the acronym? Total Depravity. Amen. Preach it. Unconditional election. God choosing because He's God and has the right to choose. And the Luther will say, Amen to the saved part. Not to the reprobate part. We are as far from superlapsarian Calvinism as you can get. Even when the infralapsarians and we talk, it still isn't the same. Three, limited atonement. Bah! Christ died for all. The words do mean what they say. All, the world, every man, you know, uh, uh, whosoever. And the Calvinist just goes wild at that because um, if God has chosen those whom he will save, then... Those are the ones for whom Christ died. Otherwise, Christ's death would somehow be lacking. Irresistible, irresistible grace. No. The way God comes to us with the gospel is not like he created the earth by pure fiat power. The way he comes to us is in ways that look kind of simple and stupid. The preaching of the gospel. Water. Cap water. Uh, wine, in our church's case, not very good wine, and bread. And that's how he approaches us with the gift of his son, not in pure fiat power. He's set it up so that we can sort of sneer at it, because he comes to us in apparent weakness. Perseverance of the saints, not in the way the Calvinist means. We will say, we'll quote the same verses in John 10 and say, everyone who stays in Christ till death, God gets the credit for it. But he's not to blame if we bolt. That's our fault. Well, to the Calvinist, this is just hopeless. I mean, it's just a hopeless mess. And that's why at the White Horse Inn, we don't have it designed as a tennis match between the Lutheran and the Reformed. That's not what it's for. But it is, we're talking different. Lutherans are Christmas Calvin. <laughs> no hell. No hell? No hell. Oh, no hell. Okay. Okay. Hey, Ron, do you think, by any chance, I've always, because it looked like I had the pieces, but you didn't put it together as Calvin. Okay. Did I, and I've always believed that had Luther lived long enough to hear Calvin out, that Luther would have agreed. It's possible. You know, Calvin signed the first edition of the Augsburg Confession. And everybody wonders what it would have been like if it had been Calvin and Luther instead of Zwingli. Even Calvin thought many times Zwingli was the east end of a horse walking west. He did. 
He did. I mean, Calvin would say, what's he done this week? Um, that was unfortunate. Hard to say. Uh, scholars love to speculate on it. Luther used to say, if you want this in dogmatics, read Philip Slochi, which he said is like a book let down from heaven. He did. And he said, ask Philip. Or Philip's done some wonderful work here in the Lochi. <laughs> Could be. Could be. Uh, very different. I mean, what Luther says, I'm a peasant and a monk. If you want this said in the language of princes, ask Melanchthon. Melanchthon and Calvin were the products of humanism. And by humanism, you know, you know what we mean in the 16th century. It isn't today's secular humanist thing. It meant people who had gone, bah, scholasticism's getting us nowhere. Let's go back and read the original sources in the original languages. Ad fontes. Back to the sources. And start over, because we're getting nowhere. So humanism meant that. What that meant was, one of the things that meant was, that when everybody in Europe was streaming to Wittenberg to hear this theology from Luther, that some of the young who were coming there brought all of their Hebrew and Greek skills with them and said, that theology is biblical, and they stayed with all their skills. So there was a lot of language classes the Reformation didn't have to teach. We stole the kids who had been schooled by the humanists in all their language training. And we just said, welcome. We can use your skills. Uh, anyway, uh, it would be a guess. I don't know, but it could be. Uh, we, all of us wonder, wh what if it had not been Zwingli, you know, at Marburg, at the conversation? It's a proper noun, Ulrich Zwingli, a Swiss guy, military, and he always felt a little peaked that Luther got so much credit for the doctrine of justification rediscovered because he thought he had, and he was slighted that Luther seemed to get all the spotlight, and he didn't, which was a perfect setup for conflict. When somebody, what was that, what was that line Reagan used to use? You can get a lot done if nobody cares who gets the credit. And Zwingli was a classic case of I haven't gotten the credit that I deserve. Luther had a lot of faults, but to put him in a room with somebody like Zwingli was just a setup for disaster. Just a setup. Calvin, I don't, I'm, I'm sure it wouldn't have gone that way had it been Calvin and Luther in the room. Anyway. Alright, let's finish this up and we'll have some time for Q&A. Uh, does this mean that man is absolutely passive in this process? Our subject thus far has been what God has done to reconcile us to him through the death of Jesus. So it's the action of God that's most important, not ours. Uh, still, we find that the call is there in the latter part of that verse. Um, the attitude of man has to be considered here. Morris, if he's set on his own selfish, sinful way, reconciliation is not going to be consumated. Again, example, you are quarreling with your friend, you eat humble pie, apologize, do everything necessary to make things right again, remove the real obstacles, sign the, do whatever you have to do, pay the money back, and your friend says he'll have none of it. I've met your kind before. Now what else can you do? You've done everything you could. There cannot be any recon reconciliation. We can say the way to reconciliation is open wide. There's no barrier to it, but there's no reconciliation either. In this, God was never in the wrong. He took the initiative to get the enmity out of the way. He has dealt with our sin. From that point of view, the reconciliation is totally complete, and still Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20 what we read. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
Reconciliation was accomplished by Christ. Nothing remains to be done. And yet, we are called upon to be reconciled to God. Here's, here's uh, uh, Leon Morris's phrase. And remember, he's a strong Calvinist. Quote, Whoever will may come, but come he must. We call it subjective justification. That is, this isn't a machine. God will have to do something within our hearts to get a yes out of us, because all we've got in us is no. We're filled with no's. Now, we're in the middle of the of uh, predestination here, and I'm not going to pursue that. We can do it maybe uh, outside, but it, Luther called it the hardest problem in all of theology. Uh, Reconciliation brings out six thoughts in particular. And I'll just summarize these. If you want to do the detail work, Gil will have the uh, PDF printouts. One, sin is the barrier. Two, sin must be dealt with and we can't deal with it. Three, we must not think that the wrath of God is no more than a figure of speech that we may safely ignore. He's talking to liberal theologians there. Um, Four, reconciliation is God's work. There's never in the New Testament the slightest hint that reconciliation, reconciliation can be brought about by what we do. We created the barrier, but we cannot break it down. Uh, God is going to have to do it. The enmity must be dealt with. Paul emphasizes this is what Christ did in his death on the cross. Remove the enmity. Uh, it doesn't tell us how, but it tell us that, tells us that he did that by his death. Five, reconciliation proceeds from the love of God. The two are not against one another. The whole beginnings of it are in the love of God. Uh, the first mention of reconciliation in the New Testament comes in a passage in which Paul is emphasizing the love of God and the cross as a demonstration of it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And uh, that we were justified by his blood and saved from God's wrath through him, that is through Christ, Romans 5, 8 through 10. Love and reconciliation aren't this. They're together. The reconciliation is the outworking of God's love. He did what had to be done if there was to be reconciliation. Okay, can we put too much emphasis on the passages which speak of enemies, uh, speak enemies and of the wrath of God? Yes. It's not really the problem of our century, but we've all seen that happen. We always use the phrase hellfire and brimstone preaching, and all of us have some kind of an idea of that, where the preacher puts us under the wrath of God using the scriptures, and then leaves us there and stops. That's not a sermon. I don't know what you call it, but it ain't a sermon. Because Christ is not delivered, and the congregation is not absolved. So it isn't a sermon. I don't know what you call it. Uh, an angry lecture? <laughs> the ain't a sermon. Six, the reconciliation must be received. We, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And the only thing I can think of here is uh, Lewis's line. Put down your guns and let's talk. <laughs> That's Lewis. Put down your guns and let's talk. Or uh, Pastor Swirla, Bill Swirla, talks about the same theme that uh, that uh, PZ was talking about the other day. He just uses a little bit different language from the Episcopalian capon. First of all, you got to drop dead. First, you got to drop dead. What does that mean? To your idea of virtues and how good you are and that God will grade on the curb and you're better than Charlie and quorum hominibus you're doing okay as compared with Charlie drop dead to that because it is dead drop dead to it and listen up I've got some good things to tell you but first drop dead to that okay that's just jumping through what uh, is going to be available if you're interested in doing it in detail all right, so let's, uh, we got a few minutes and maybe some Q&A and then a break. Yeah. Rob, uh, where, uh, where do you see the issue of repentance when it comes to reconciliation? Well, repentance is a minefield. 
It's a very, very real, real biblical word. And Luther made several missteps on that and realized that he made the missteps and tried to start over again. Repentance is a place where you can really sort of slip in quietly to a semi-Pelagianism. Uh, have you repented? And as Norman Daigle of the St. Louis Seminary says, adverbs are the great enemy of the gospel. Have you truly repented? Have you deeply repented? It isn't enough. You know, have you repented? Then you add some adverbs. Uh, it was like my daughter came to hear Sinclair Ferguson. I wanted to bring her to a Ligonier conference. They were up in Seattle. She was available, and she heard Sinclair Ferguson do repentance. And afterwards she said, I thought that, that in my life I had repented, but now I'm not so sure. Well, it was that Scottish Calvinism, you know. They had all the adverbs. Or if it really goes sour, in Wesleyan circles, how many cc's of tears did you cry? <laughs> or, or, if you truly repented of that, you're not doing it anymore, right? <laughs> this is a catastrophe. It's just a catastrophe. So, that preface to that. I think the basic New Testament word has to do with agreeing with God's verdict and calling our verdict for what it is. Baloney. And his verdict is true. In other words, the turning or the repenting is first of all cognitive. Will I agree with what God says of me in Scripture or will I deny it? Now, Wesley turns it into something like how many cc's of tears have you cried? And this disaster. Disaster. You'll be on that You'll never get out of that. It'll wake you up in the middle of the night. I thought I had repented, but maybe I didn't. Maybe I need to recommit, recommit my life to Christ now. And maybe it'll take, but it didn't before, but maybe it will this time. Huh? So, I think repentance is, first of all, just acknowledging what this book says about me is true. And my idea of, of me sucks. That's for starters. And then you can't work it into the plan of salvation. Lutherans say, certainly, baptism, you're not going to talk about a child can't repent. That we're not, that's not our subject. But even with adults, if you just limit it to adults, that repentance stuff we want to be careful of because it becomes a new work. You know, Luther was charged with a salvation by works, Bellarmine and the others say that he just has a different set of works. Here are our set, and his is faith. The one work you must do. And we work like crazy to say, it isn't that, it's a gift from heaven. We must do it, and we can't. And when we do, God gets the credit because it was a gift. But it's not fair to call it the one work you must do. It's a category mistake. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And you do. And you say, I stuck in my thumb and pulled out a plumb and what a good boy am I. And then some good Augustinian priest drums that out of you with verses and you say, holy smokes, he gave me that too. Ron, I'd like to say yes, but I think I can't because I don't think the thing is cracked by putting it into dispensations like that. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, anybody who can read the Sermon on the Mount and say, I felt so blessed. <laughs> it makes me so curious. It does. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. I'm sure glad I'm a peacemaker. Everybody knows that about me. I'm a peacemaker. Yes. Yeah, maybe that helps. I I think of Isaiah in Isaiah six in the throne room. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and I said, "Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I am undone. I am unglued." Well, that was a repentance of sorts. It was just seeing the Lord high and lifted up, and it was just devastation. And immediately, an angel was sent to touch his lips, that coal. Uh, but that undoneness, that sort of feeling of, I bring nothing except negative things. I'm screwed. And it's that, it's that. That where we're acknowledging that really is that's what the Bible says. Yeah. I don't want. That's what I'm trying to avoid. That's what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah. I. Yeah. Or another one that's very unusual. Do you not know that the grace of God is designed to lead you to repentance? Now that one, I'd love to hear a New Testament guy talk to me about. That's an unusual verse. I don't know. But the the thing that just horrifies me is what's done to people in holiness circles. Where the, the repentance stuff becomes a purgatory of sorts inwardly. And there's hours of preaching of it. And Sunday after Sunday. And I want to come in there and, and break that pastor's nose and proclaim Christ, you know, Isaiah 40. Woof! And proclaim peace to the captives. The White Horse Inn is really directed to people who've had to sit under that stuff and to say, you don't have to do this, and you can hold a high view of the Bible and not be in that stuff. And we'll, we'll proclaim Christ to you. He is greater than your sin. The death of Christ is so great in its extent, it can even save a Christian. (laughs) The readership we get in modern Reformation, when the theme is Christ died for the sins of Christians too, is just through the roof. There's a reason for that. It's a barometer of what's going on, you know, in the evangelicals. Um desperate need for somebody to break that cycle of Christianity is about your improvement. It's not. It's about what was done for you, primarily, and it'll do what it does in you. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's basically basically about what Christ has done to deliver you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What is the sound response? I, don't, I think it is, we are living in a time when the Weltanschauung or the, the sort of uh, world view that we are in is very inhospitable to Christianity in a variety of ways. One of them is disinterest. You know, Harry Blamires, who was called kind of a Lewis after Lewis, describes the worst of situations that he could imagine and that he found in the Western world, and it was disinterest. That thing, disinterest. You know, you preach the law or try to communicate the law, but that disinterest. And then to make matters worse, the test for truth is an inward sort of bliss. 
or something. And those are tough grounds for the gospel to get traction. I don't have a good canned answer to that. Uh, I was telling somebody earlier, we have no cemeteries in Irvine. That's right. The sun will never fall till after Camelot, you know. The range will this and the, you know. We, the cemeteries are elsewhere. The Hearst drives out of Irvine. Now, in that kind of world, you have exactly the opposite of what you had in the first century. What are the reasons that the gospel just exploded into the Greco-Roman world was that people were desperate for some way their sin could be forgiven. That hardly describes Irvine, California. (laughs) And in that kind of a setting, when somebody announces it has been done and it's free, it went like wildfire. We don't live in that kind of a a world. And I don't have a happy... The disinterested drive me nuts. Give me an angry atheist every time. He's closer than he thinks. But the disinterested drive me nuts. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, that he rescued us from his own wrath. Absolutely. That'll sometimes get people's attention. Yeah, I think that's utterly fair to say. It's one way, sure. Yeah, God rescued us from God, from God's justice. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you the author on the parables of Scapon. It's Scapon. He's Episcopal. He's your guy, especially on the tough parables. Scapon. C a p o n. Anybody know his first name? Robert Capod on the parables. Okay? Anything but... Yeah, uh, Robert Capod. Uh, great stuff. You know, why the church doesn't get it. Uh, or his little novel Between Noon and Three. Uh, anything he writes, I'd say, take a look at it. Because he gets grace. Um... I I I think I'm going to have to defer on that. I'm not New Testament, and I don't. I I think I have to look to my betters on that. Uh, on election, I'm going to try and avoid it until we drive back home again. Uh, but for those of you who are curious about a Lutheran view of election, I uploaded CFW Walther to the uh, Modern Reformation site. It's there for free. C.F.W. Walter, he wrote on the proper distinction between law and gospel, that's his classic, but the largest fight we ever had in Lutheranism on American soil was the predestinarian controversy. And the group I grew up with, the Scandinavians, and the Iowa Synod, the Buffalo Synod, took the position that God elects people in tuitu fidei, in view of foreseen faith in Jesus. The Missouri Synod heard that, and they said, You stupid Norwegians, that's Arminianism! And the Norwegians and Swedes looked back and said, All right, well, what's the true position? And Missouri laid it out, and they said, You stupid Germans, that's Calvinism! And began the conflagration. Uh, this, there are three things in this upload, if you want to go get it for free. One is a sermon 
on Ephesians 1 and Romans 9. Two is a catechetical thing. Q&A. Questions on election answer. Question, answer, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And the third thing is a paper by Walter. I did this because I got so tired of the Reformed saying, we've heard you guys are Arminians, but you're not Calvinists either. Can you tell us your position? And this way I can just say go to the website. But I don't have to do it orally every time. But for those of you who are interested, I put it up on the Modern Reformation website. You can offload it. The the guts of this thing are one afternoon God reconciled you and me to Himself. We made ourselves His enemies, and we're not anymore because He He did what was necessary at great cost to create peace between us. We're so familiar with it that it's sort of, it's death by boredom. But it's phenomenal. In the first century, this was phenomenal news. That there was peace between you and the real God, the one who really is. Real peace, and he did it so you don't have to lie awake nights. Uh, he created peace. You're at peace with him. Whether you feel like it or not. Yeah. No, I have to work with what's given to me, and I just have to acknowledge I'm curious about that, but God didn't see fit to tell me. Okay. I mean, in view of like, it seems like Christ's uh, death was maybe in view of like the Old Testament sacrifice. Oh, sure. Well, one of the things I'm not going through here is his chapter on sacrifice, and that's available. I'm the outline. I just don't have time to do it with you. But yes, and he'll have that outline of the chapter on sacrifice and those connections. So is that not an explanation? That's not an explanation. Well, in a certain sense it is. In a certain sense it is. But to the engineer who really wants to be down inside in the engine room, he always wishes there were more as to the pieces, parts, and how they... And sometimes we have to say, since Christ's view of the Old Testament was it was enough, that we're to adopt that and say, I'll leave that for what Chemnitz calls that heavenly school, and I'll ask them. Right now, I'm going to believe that he's given me what I need to know, even though that doesn't always feel like it. I need to know this. And basically, I think we should school ourselves to say, his word is sufficient for us. If there are questions it doesn't answer, we'll get to someday, but not yet. Who's doing uh, any important work in this problem of disinterest? I don't know many. I don't know many. Does somebody else know? Just indifference to Christianity. It's especially... Yeah, that's right. That's, that drives me crazy. You know, if this is so what, what isn't so what to you? A new BMW 700? What, is, what does turn your crank if this doesn't? Yes. It's especially... It's Israel. You know, in good times, what happened with Israel... Yeah. Yeah. There, we've had good times, and it's not always our friend that we have. Well, on the other hand, given the multitude of calls of them, first the secret sympathy, and now the emerging church movement, 
show that we may talk about this time, but Israel did worship something. They did worship the balls during the good time. And I think people in Europe and the United States are seeking God, but they want to find him their way. Yes. They want to be their God. Yes. Yes. Yeah. A golden calf that, uh, you know, this one, this is more like it. We can see it, dance around it, and more. Uh, yeah. It's shiny. You know, I sound like a Calvinist, you know, with graven images, but boy, you know, we do that. We do that, and in good times especially, it's easy. You know? I'm frightened to death at the lack of the passing on of the content of Christianity to the next generation. And those churches on TV are my enemy. They're my enemy. For somebody who says Christianity is content-filled, it's built of propositions. Luther said to Erasmus, Erasmus, Christianity has to do with assertions. And it does. And if there's anything that it's short on in those smooth eagle services, it's content. All right, how are we doing for time, Gil? Well, let's take a take a break.